0: Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures all his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney. Although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession, we are continuing in our major study of the Book of Daniel, and today's lesson is titled "The Dream," taken from Daniel chapter 2, verses 24 to 43. This is the sixth lesson in this ongoing series. Doug is at the podium, ready to begin. So let's go into the classroom of the Believers Bible Class, located on the campus of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady.
1: Father, we thank you that we can be here today and that uh, we can study uh, your Bible with an open book and not have anybody tell us what we have to do or what we can't do. Help us, Father, to be the kind who will stand up with unashamed boldness and speak on your behalf as you direct now, Father, I pray that you will fill me with your spirit this morning, that you will control me and empower me, and may we teach just what you want taught and nothing else. Uh, if there's things that I didn't think about before that you want said, I pray that you'll put them on my mind and my heart so that I will share them with my friends here. Father, I pray that you will be with Julie, that you will help her in her physical distress, and... Uh, I pray also that you will be with John, especially help him in his uh, rehab, that he can come back to full strength. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, going to Daniel, I want you to open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2. If you remember, we started with this dream uh, last Sunday, and we were looking at the effects of this dream, and I want us to recollect that. Here, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, has got this vision. He's staring at this awesome statue in this dream. Now, one of the things that you're going to see is I don't think anybody who creates these pictures knows exactly how to do it correctly. We're going to look at that a little bit later. But his spirit was troubled, and he couldn't sleep And this dream was reoccurrent, and he became anxious or worried uh, because he couldn't understand the dream, and it was a mystery to him. And that's the the reason that he was so adamant about learning the exact meaning of this. Now, you remember, Daniel went in to tell him that he would get him both the interpretation of the dream and the dream itself. Now, did he know the dream when he told the king that? Now, we've been going back and forth. I've been going back and forth with this with someone, and I want you to see something uh, in verse 16 of chapter 2. It says, so Daniel went in and requested of the king that he give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now, Understand as we're going through, they're gonna say over and over the interpretation. You say, wait, the king wants to know the dream and the interpretation. Well, if he can the way it's set up, if he can give him an interpretation, he can give him the dream. Because the king's not telling them the dream. But there's the question, did he go in to see the king on that time? I studied this, and I think the answer is yes, he did. He went in to talk to the king. No one else had the authority to give Daniel the time that he wanted in order to determine what this dream was. I'm going to show you why I'm convinced of that. Then you're going to see in this chapter, in the portion of this chapter we're studying today, that in verse 25, after Ariok, Daniel calls Ariok, the guy who was going to kill everybody or see that everybody's dead, he says, I have the dream and the interpretation, I can tell the king, he says in verse 25, Then Ariok hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence, and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. So if that's the case, why didn't Ariok go the first time to see the king, but he certainly went the second time? The first time, Arioch was very concerned that Daniel wouldn't come out of the presence of the king because you just don't go into the king unbidden. And he never, he didn't know whether the king would be very angry and maybe blame Arioch. If Arioch, what are you bringing this kid in here? He's 17 years old. What are you bringing this kid in here for me? But now he knows Daniel knows the dream and the interpretation. And so what is Arioch doing? Hey, king! I have found someone. I've been searching. And i finally located someone among the exiles of Judah. He's going to tell you the dream and the interpretation. So he is trying to build up himself. Now we're going to see in a minute what Daniel's going to do with that. Yes.
0: It also demonstrates his uh, belief in Daniel's ability. Because if Daniel didn't, he would have had
1: his head taken off too. But the other interesting thing is that he went to the king in haste. I imagine the whole palace or whatever was in disarray because the king was just going crazy over this dream. We're going to talk about that even more in just a second. And I, will, I want you to see Daniel's perspective on that. But I want us to go back and look and see what Daniel is saying. Because Daniel goes in and he prays. Now, he's got three guys praying with him. Does the narrative tell us the prayers that Daniel, Hannah, and I, Mishael, Azariah offered asking God for compassion and to tell them the dream? No. Why, why wouldn't it tell us that? It may, there's a lot of suggestions, a lot of commentators made. The one that means, seems the most reasonable to me is that a lot of us would then say, well, that's the way you have to do it. That's the only way to do it. And if this is not successful, something's wrong. They would, they would want to say it's a magic formula, but no. But it does tell us what dream of Daniel's dream, what prayer of Daniel's, his Thanksgiving prayer, right? And I want us to look at a few of the words. Now, it's a little more difficult for me when we're dealing with this because this is not Hebrew and this is not Greek. This is Aramaic. And I have to depend on outside people. But let's look at a couple of things he says in this prayer. God, he, God, who changes the times and the epics. Now, what are the times and the epics? I want you to see that. Let's read through this prayer just a second. And Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. For it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise men and knowledge to the men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells in him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give pra- thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Now, I want us to first focus on that phrase, he who changes the times and the epochs." he who changes the times and the epochs. What does that mean? understand this is something you will see throughout the scripture the times basically means a chronology from the beginning to the end the epochs or it may be in the king james here says seasons are divisions of those of that chronology now if you were here when we studied dispensations you will remember that there is a timeline and then there's divisions in that timeline which we called a dispensation. Do you remember how many dispensations there were? Four dispensations, very good. The Jewish dispensation, though, was divided, was it not? After the dispensation of the church, there was a short seven-year dispensation, continuation of the Jews, which is spoken of in Daniel nine twenty-four through 27. Now, he's the one who changes these. He's got control of time. Now, this question at first may not sound like it makes sense, but was there a time when there was no time? Yes, because is God in time? He created the space-time continuum. Before he created it, there was no time. There, and here, You see, our language is such that, that time is just embedded in it, and you can't hardly explain it without it. But will there come a time when there will no longer be any time? Yes, yes there will, and we will live in that era when there's no longer any time. He is in control of those things. That's number one. Number two, it says, he who reveals the profound and hidden things, reveal. That means to tell secrets previously unknown. So that's what he's going to do here. In this passage, he's going to tell secrets that were previously unknown, that are profound or deep, That is knowledge that no one else could know or understand if God didn't explain it to them. If God didn't explain it, you couldn't know or understand. Think about this a second. What if you had no understanding of this statue? No benefit of the explanation. Daniel, You know, what would you say it meant? You wouldn't get it right unless you're peeking. Now he's also saying the profound and hidden things. Things that no one other than the hider could find. That's what that, that's saying. Now he says, he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. Darkness here meaning a place you can't see. Now, I want you to think about this a second. When God created the time-space continuum, did he create darkness? Was anything there? No, darkness was created by him. He controls the darkness. He also Control the light. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then subsequent to that, he created light. Before that light, what was there? Darkness. That would help us understand the condition of the earth. Frozen over because there's no light to warm it. So you have this situation where he creates that. And he knows what's in the darkness. It can't hide from him. From us, things in the darkness are hidden, but not for him. And Daniel goes forward and he explains this dream. Now, there's something that Bob brought up last time. He's not here right now. But it's a key principle that we talked about last time that I want you to see. And that is a crisis always provides the best opportunity to display the godly character in a charismatic way. First of all, godly character. That's where a, the Lord is in control of the man or the woman. What is the natural inclination in a crisis for a man or a woman? Panic, fear, discombobulation. God is the one who can control a man or a woman. And you see that godly character in a charismatic way in a crisis. You say, "Ooh, well, if he's able to be calm and to do things like that... I want to be with him. I want, to follow, I want to listen to him. I'll get behind him. And that's this concept here that we need to come to understand. Now let's look at length at this announcement to the king. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, who the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and he went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Ariok hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him, that is to the king, as follows. I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who will make the interpretation known to the king. And the king said to Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made moan to the king of Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while you're on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has been made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you should understand the thoughts of your mind. First thing I want you to see, notice in verse 24, who is Daniel showing concern for? Who? The other wise guy, men. Now, wait a second. If Daniel and his three friends are fixing that they're still in, in study, they're still in training, but they're going to be graduating pretty soon, Wouldn't it be good just to get rid of all the other wise men?
0: Well, it depends on what kind of person you are. If you're a man of character, no. Yes, but if
1: you're a man who only is thinking about yourself.
0: We need to condemn him and put him to death.
1: You're awfully strong in your opinion on that. I'm going to leave that. That's, That's an Amalekite attitude, and we need to understand that. But we're going to go on, and I want you to see Daniel doesn't think that way. He says, no, stop, don't kill any of them. I'm going to save them all. Now, are these the guys who would like to see Daniel thrown into the lion's den? Yes. Oh, yes. Are these the guys who would tattle on Hananiah, Mishael, and Nazariah and get them thrown into the fiery furnace? Yes. yes. That's right. God is the one. We're to show love and grace, and that's what he's doing. He shows genuine concern for these people. Now, he could have said to Arioch, you know, go ahead and kill these other wise men. They've been lying to the king anyway. Just take me into his presence uh, because I'm going to tell him. Now, I want you to know that Daniel told the king, before Daniel told him anything else, he made sure the king understood without equivocation at all how the dream was revealed to Daniel. Do you remember last time we looked at the setup? You see, God used these wise men to set the king up. This is what it says in verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician conjurer Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is impossible. And there is uh, no one else who could declare it to the king except uh, except gods whose dwelling is not with mortal men. So what are they saying? You're asking us to do this. It's impossible. We can't do it. No king would ever do this. It's unreasonable. The only one who could do this is a god. Now he's set up. And does Daniel come in and say, yeah, I'm the god? No. He's going to make certain that there's no question about it. And he's going to cause Nebuchadnezzar to understand something. What was the purpose of this State Department, these conjurers, magicians, and astrologers and, uh, and the chaldeans they were supposed to help the king know the future what was going to happen what is the demonstration here the, those guys they can't do anything to help you except to lie to you to manipulate you but my god can tell you the future and you're not going to believe what he's going to tell you when i show you this daniel is also setting up a scenario where he can teach these guys the future of the Messiah coming. Now, did you hear that? Daniel, he says, is setting up a situation where he can teach these people about the future Messiah coming. Why would he do that, Les? Except, that shouldn't that be his responsibility? He, he's there to lead people to who? The one true God. That's exactly what he's been doing. The, I don't want us to think, well, that responsibility is only to the members of the church. Oh, no. That's always been the responsibility. Wait, let me get this question in the back first. Yes, sir. Um, I was looking at uh, verse 25. Did you say 25? Okay.
0: Ariak uh, went into the kingdom business and asserted that he had found somebody who could. And I was curious as to how he knew Daniel... Good,
1: because look on the verse 24 therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed wise men and says do not destroy take me to the king's presence and I'll declare the interpretation I'm sorry uh, I meant to say verse
0: 25
1: yes but Arioch knew because Daniel told him he knew all right good question Cathy.
0: I just love it
1: that um that Nebuchadnezzar, the way that he knew that Jesus was Jesus, was he had told all the Pharisees, it's impossible to cure the woman with the issues of blood. She's mad, and only God can do that. And it's like, whenever you hear that, it's just laying away for Jesus. You're right. It's set up. And that's what, what was going on. Now, Daniel's going to inform the king that no other person that is except the triune God can reveal this future. And he explains that to him. Again, in verse 27, I want to read that again so that we see it. For as for the mystery about which the king is inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. What is he saying about the rest of the Babylonian uh, pantheon? Their fault, they're not there. There is a God in heaven, one God in heaven who declares these kinds of mysteries. And he's made known to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will take place in the latter days. He's saying, this, this God put this dream in your heart. Now, that would probably be an amazing thing to Nebuchadnezzar. The God can put a dream in my heart? Yes. And notice what he says in verse 29. As for you, O king, while you were on your bed, your thoughts turned to take place to the future. Well, he doesn't know this is about the future. But he's revealing this mystery. Now, notice how do we know it relates to the future? Look in verse uh, 28. There's a phrase there, it says, In the latter days. Now, in the legal profession, we have a, a phrase called, It's a term of art. That means it's something that you use specifically in that profession, whether it's the legal profession, you know, medical profession has a number of terms of art. They say that. Julie will talk about stuff, medical stuff. I have no idea what she's talking about. But she knows it's understandable to to people in the medical profession. There are other professions, engineering profession, architectural profession, uh, design professionals. They have terms of art. Now, this is a term of art. This is used throughout the scriptures. Let's look at a couple of passages in Isaiah chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, it says, And the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. The mountain of the house of the Lord. Does that bring something from Daniel's dream to mind? Oh, yes, it kind of does. We'll look at that later. In Jeremiah chapter 30. Verse 24, it says, the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has performed and until he has accomplished the intent of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand this. In other words, you can't see it now, but you will in the latter days. In Hosea 3, 5, it says, after the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days talking about the end of the tribulation period in Micah uh, 4 1 through 3 it said and it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the God will establish as the chief of the mountains he makes that same prophecy that Isaiah made Daniel even in the 10th chapter of his book he says now I have come To give Daniel's not saying this, the angelic messenger is. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to days yet future. All of these terms. So he is telling what's going to be in the future. Now when we say future, we're talking about from the time that he set up his kingdom through to the end of the tribulation. He's going to tell him in this dream about that entire time period, except for one epoch that is left out. Now, the church age is right, the dispensation of the church. God doesn't tell him about that. Now, I may be wrong about that. God may have told Daniel, because we're going to find one place in chapters 10 through 12 where God tells Daniel something, but says, Don't write it, don't tell anybody keep it to yourself now what did he tell him well we don't know but so he could have told him about the church age i don't know but the fact is there's nothing in the prophecy about the coming church now why would god not tell him does the nation of israel have to make a decision whether to accept to receive their messiah or not when he comes does god want to predict ahead of time that they won't to have a chilling effect on their decision well, what could we have done? You told us that, it that we weren't going to do it. So it's, it's not really our responsibility for saying no because you told us we would say no. We couldn't do anything differently after you said that. So to avoid that, God doesn't tell him. He keeps it a mystery until Jesus comes. Yes, Gary? It does say in chapter two that at some point in time when that, when that kingdom. <laughs> away from that mountain, the rock, it will be, or it will start during the time of those particular kings, which sounds like it's during the, the time of the Romans. No, I'm going to show you why I disagree with that, but we got to wait till we get there. It starts, the stone doesn't come until the time of the ten toes. Has the time of the ten toes come yet? Yeah. So let's see, but let's go on. Now, this dream was a mystery, and I want you to see a couple of phrases here that we need to see, because people don't seem to understand this in the way they translate it. In his dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a great and awesome statue of a man, very large statue. He says it was of extraordinary splendor in verse 31. Now, what does that mean? Extraordinary splendor means well, extreme or surpassing, and it could be splendor or brightness. And I think brightness would be a better translation. These, these metals are highly polished, and they're extraordinary in how bright they are. Is that going to have an effect on Nebuchadnezzar later? Yes, because is he going to set up a statue of his own? Ah, and is it going to be highly polished? Yes, when, I show, when we get to chapter 3, I'm going to show you pictures of the plain of Dura. I want you to imagine Dallas being completely flat, okay, the Dallas area, completely flat. I want you to imagine a bright, sunny day, and I want you to imagine you're standing right here at where the First Baptist Church was, but it's not there because it's completely flat, no buildings, no houses, no nothing, and you're looking north. This statue, as high as it is, if it's a bright, sunny day, you would see it if it was planted up there on the First Baptist Church of Richardson. That far. You would see it. You, get, you leave Babylon and start to approach that plane, and you can start seeing the sun dazzle off that 90-foot, which is a nine-story statue. So it's going to be extremely bright. And it was standing in front. Now it uses the word... In the New American Standard, it says it's awesome. What word does it use in the King James? Terrible or terrifying? Who has the better translation? Does awesome sound good? Does terrifying sound bad? The word here in the verb stem of this word is to cause to be afraid or to make afraid. In other words, this isn't some great statue he's looking at, this is scary. This is something that causes fear if you see this kind of guy. Most of these statutes are rather benign in their appearance. No, this wasn't benign. This was terrifying. Now let's look at the reality of this dream for just a minute. The centerpiece of the dream was a man. Whose world do we live in? Satan's world. That's what you think, Damaris? Well, let's see if Paul agrees with you. In 2 Corinthians 4... Verse 4, it says, in whose case the God of this world, little case G, has blinded the, of the, the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. Here, Paul is talking about an image and you can't see the right image. Why? Because the God of this world has blinded unbelievers and he wants to blind them. Unless you ever ran into an unbeliever who was kind of blinded and just couldn't see the light. Yeah, it happens, unfortunately. So what we're saying here is, this statue is from man's point of view, from the world's point of view. And I want you to see it, and you say, why would God do that? Well, it's important, and we need to see it. You see, in in Satan's world, it appears that man rules. Man is in control. But just as this statute, men are really powerless to control much of anything. Now look at the appearance for a second of this statute. The statute made of five different substances, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. Now, before we get to the interpretation, I want us just to look at this, at this statute here that we're seeing. And, and well, we probably ought to read the dream starting verse 31. And you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, the statue which was large in an extraordinary splendor and was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its uh, legs of iron "...its feet uh, partly of iron and partly of clay, and you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on the feet and the, uh, of iron and clay and crushed them. And then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff uh, from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that uh, not a trace of them was found." But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, that's the dream. It's interesting. When's the wheat harvest in Israel? Pentecost, in the summer. That's why he says the summer threshing floor. Then refer to the barley harvest. Now, let's start and look down this statue for just a second. Of all the metals used in the creation of the statue, gold is clearly the most valuable. It's the most malleable or lacking in strength, but is easy to fashion and to make into something. It's also the most reflective of all these metals. It's more reflective than silver. So you begin to see that for everything except hardness, gold is superior. All right? Now, the next one is, let's go back to that statue just a second. What you're going to see is here again, they don't make it look very terrifying to me, but... What's silver? What is supposed to be silver? What does the text say? The arms, shoulders, and chest. He has it down to including his abdomen. Abdomen's not supposed to be silver. Abdomen's supposed to be bronze. I'm going to suggest to you in a minute that the loins, iron. That is from the belt down. The legs at the top are iron, and then it comes down. Why? Well, that gives much more length of the body for iron. It doesn't seem to, how long did this Babylonian empire last? 70 years, basically. You could count some time before and maybe say 80 years. How long did the Roman empire last? Over a thousand years. You begin to see what's going on. Uh, Greek empire did not last that long, nor did the Persians. So we're going to see these things as they come on. Persia lasted a little longer uh, than the Babylonian Empire. So you have the gold. Now we look at the breast and arms of silver. It's It's secondary in value. It's stronger than gold, but it's still malleable. It is also highly reflective when polished, but not as reflective as gold. So the statue, the section of this statue has two parts and it has two arms. This is the part... With the head, you just have one, right? With the arms and chest, you have two. Two sides of pecs, two shoulders, two arms. Why would... The, does that have any meaning? Yeah. Well, we're going to have to see. You get to the, to the abdomen, bronze. How many parts does it have? One. one. And so you begin to see, does that have any meaning? What about the iron? It starts out, if you, if you correctly do it, from the belt down... It's one part, right? Now, I don't want any crude comments made by anybody, please. Especially you, Don. Now, but then it changes into two parts, right? Two legs. Well, we want to see, does that have any meaning? Now, am I going to tell you what the meaning of those things are today? No. Next Sunday. But I am going to tell you one thing I thought about. What's the key part of a man to God? His heart. You're right. Now part of that that's represented by the heart would be wood metal silver now we'll get ahead of ourselves a little bit here who does the silver represent the medes and the persians does god have something in his heart for the medes and the persians did he use nebuchadnezzar yeah he did to destroy israel what is he going to use cyrus the great for To restore Israel, to let them go back, to give them all the implements from the temple that that Nebuchadnezzar stole to help them rebuild their temple. Much different than the Persians of today. But anyway, let's let's go on. So it says, the belly and the thighs of bronze. So, hey, Doug, that can't be. The thighs are part of bronze. Well, the Aramaic word here, translated, translated thighs, can be thigh, loin, flank, or side. Thigh, loin, flank, or side. Wouldn't you know whether it should be translated thighs or not by knowing what number it is? If it's plural, then that's more likely thighs. You could say you have two flanks, it could be flanks. If it's singular. Then you're talking about an abdomen, which is singular, right? The word is singular. It's not plural. It's not thighs. Everybody, there was a mistranslation back in 1611, and it's just continued on. And no. Now, the legs and and loin are of iron. Iron is less valuable than bronze. It's not as reflective as bronze. It will rust but it's clearly stronger and it seems like to picture a two-part kingdom or a kingdom that was divided. Now, the last thing are the feet and toes and they're part iron, part clay. Now, does iron and clay mix? No. And in fact, it's easily for clay to crumble. So it's trying to tell us something. This kingdom of the feet where it changes seems to be a continuation of the fourth kingdom. Did you notice that? From the head kingdom to the shoulders, it's entirely different metal, right? From the shoulders to the abdomen, entirely different metal. From the abdomen to the loins and, and legs, entirely different metal. Get to the feet, part the same metal, part a new element clay. So it's a continuation. And I want you to see that it involves 10 parts, this kingdom. And we're going to look more at it here in just a minute. What is some of the meaning uh, uh, of the elements it's made out of? But first, I want to talk about the stone. You see, as Nebuchadnezzar is viewing this grand statue in his dreams, which appears awesome, there appears a large stone which is cut out of a mountain. This stone moved away at great speed, it strikes and destroys the image's feet. And some people want to say that's all it does. But no, it doesn't. It does a lot more than that. It pulverizes every part of that statute until it's just a fine dust so that the wind blows it away. Now, as we stop here just a second, I want to ask you, how many kingdoms are displayed by this dream? Six, if you count the feet and toes as one. That's, I'm sure, that's why you said four. Or I mean Five. All right, I I got it, yes. Yes. There were were ten kings in the toes, and yet they're really displayed as one. And they're going to be as one until somebody starts knocking off three of them. So, but we'll, we'll get to that. Now, what is the overriding characteristic of this stone, do you think? There's, ah, cut out without hands. That, again, is a term of art. I want you to see, look down in Mark chapter 14, and let's see how they use this. Mark It says, We have heard him say, this is the Pharisee speaking, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build up another made without hands. Now, they are quoting who? Jesus. What temple is he talking about that's going to be destroyed? The temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Okay? It's going to be completely destroyed. It was made with hands, meaning human beings made it. What temple is he talking about that's going to be raised up in three days without hands? Himself, as he is raised from the dead. You see, two different temples. Right now... Right at that time, they had one temple, that is the temple in Jerusalem. Do we have a temple today? Yes, you're living in it. And I can tell you the temple of your mate is much better than yours. I thought you'd agree with that. Now, yes, but she needs to control you a little bit more. I don't know why I said that, but we'll just figure it out as we go. Look again where that same phrase is used in Colossians 2, verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Here, without hands is a phrase of God has done this. When they were building the the altars on Mount Gerizim, what did God say? Don't you cut those stones at all. Don't have an implement used on them at all. Just put them together as you find them. Why? Because who made those stones? God did. I want this altar made with my materials, not man interference at all. It's interesting how God sees that, and he says it, and this is the biblical imagery. If If you question whether the stone is really a kingdom, you can look in the verses I've put there because the a mountain is always a metaphor for a kingdom in, in, in the scripture. Notice that the stones appears suddenly and without warning. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is admiring this statue and all of a sudden, here comes this stone and it smashes the statue. Can the statue then re- be repaired or restored? No, it is irreparable. That's going to be the change. It man's rule will be gone forever once the stone shows up. It's interesting. Jesus' kingdom is referred to as a stone or a rock, and he names Peter the one who's going to start the church as the stone or the rock. Now, he is the cornerstone of the church that he's building, the one that the Pharisees rejected, and that God is going to build everything around. You're absolutely right. Now, Let's look at an overview of this dream's meaning. This dream is all about the time of the Gentiles. Now, we've used that phrase before, the time of the Gentiles. You've heard it. How did we define the term? The time period from when a descendant of David no longer sat on the throne, lasting until a descendant of David once again sits on this throne. That is the time of the Gentiles. Now... There's another way you could measure it, which is interesting. You could measure this period with the beginning, uh, with the arrival of the head of gold. That's when it starts. And the finished is the arrival of the stone striking the feet. That is also a way to look at the time of the Gentiles. There's a third way, interesting way, basically. You look at it from statue to Statue. Statue to statue, what do you mean? Well, this is the start. Nebuchadnezzar sees this statue starting the time of the Gentiles. Will there be a statue in the future that talks about the end of the time of the Gentiles? The one that the Antichrist is going to place in the Holy of Holies and that the false prophet is going to make come alive. And breathe and speak and say, if you don't take this vaccine, I mean, you don't take this mark, you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to do anything. You're not going to be able to buy, sell, work, own, anything. Uh, forget for that and slip. I didn't mean to say that. But I want you to see that. Now, I've had some people suggest that this phrase, the time of gems, that's just something you made up. Well, I didn't make it up. But I do know the guy who made it up. Let me introduce you to him over here in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 23. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. You know what time he's talking about? Tribulation period. Who's doing the talking? Jesus. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people and they will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captives into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled under the foot of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. That's the time of the Gentiles. Interesting. Look at the end of it in Revelation eleven one and 2. It says, Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it, has not been, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Just like Jesus said, be tread underfoot. That's the end. At the end of that 42 months, that is the end of the time of the Gentiles never to be again, irreparable. Fortunately, I will no longer be a Gentile. I will be the bride of Jesus the Messiah, just like most of you. Now I want us to look back at something we looked at before because I want you to see this. It is titled Order of the Book, but do you remember the form, the literary form that Daniel uses for the first seven chapters? A chiasm. Who said that? Very good. Very good very good Tom. It's a chiasm. So you see, the themes that's spoken about in chapter 2 are also spoken about in chapter 7. The themes talked about in chapter 3 are also talked about in chapter 6. What's the theme in chapter 3? Three? three men thrown into a fiery furnace because they refused to bow down. Chapter 6, one man thrown into uh, the lion's den because he refused to bow down. Chapter 4, what's that about? That's about bringing Nebuchadnezzar, turning him to an animal first, to bring him to the Lord God. Chapter 5, same theme, only it's now his great-grandson who says, I'm Belshazzar, and I'm not doing it. I'm going to get those things my father stole out of the temple, and we're going to drink to it and party and have an orgy. And then the writing appears on the wall. Uh-huh. You have been weighed in the balances, and have been found wanting, and your kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to the means of the Persians. Uh, The father, the great-grandfather says yes to God, the great-grandson says no, but you see it's the same themes. Now, because of that, it helps us to understand what chapter 2 is all about, and this dream that we read. You see, the vision in, in, in chapter 2 is seen through the eyes of a Gentile king as part of the times of the Gentiles. He was the one who was doing the trampling under the feet of the Jews. Did Nebuchadnezzar trample Jews and Jerusalem and the temple under his feet? Absolutely he did. He saw a man of much splendor whose appearance was awesome or terrifying. Everybody ought to be scared of me, Nebuchadnezzar would say. Now, you compare that with chapter 7, and chapter 7 is quite different. You see, in chapter 7, the vision is seen through Daniel's eyes. Was Daniel the trampler or the tramplee? He was the tramplee. His people were being trampled. His country was being destroyed. His city was wiped out. His temple was not having one stone left on the other. He sees the the, the vision a lot differently. And what does he see? He sees beasts. That head of gold is a beast. That the arms of silver is a beast. The bronze, that's a beast. And oh, the horrible beast, uh, that's the last one that was the iron. Horrible beast. A beast he couldn't even describe like he could any of the others. It was so horrible and wicked as we will come to see. Because you see, as everything got less valuable, less reflective, less malleable, and harder so are the hearts of the people of the Roman Empire and the revived Roman Empire. Hard, hardened to God, and we will see that. And so as we look in these dreams, whether it's vision in chapter 7, which we haven't looked at yet, or the dream in chapter 2, you remember we talk about there's no church mention. These are the dispensations as we studied them. You remember, four dispensations. But that's not the way the Jews saw it. The Jews saw it like this. Only three. There was no church dispensation. There's not in Daniel's vision. There's not in Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it really tell about the church unless you're looking backwards. What do I mean by that? Well, look at at this. Uh, If you were to ask a Jew in Daniel's time, is the Messiah coming? Yes. Of course he is. We're waiting for him. Then you ask him, well, how many times is he going to come? Well, Only once. He only needs to come once. That's what they thought. Look at this passage for just a second uh, where you can see the secret now, but you couldn't see the secret then. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's the promise. It's on so many of our Christmas cards. For a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I want you to to look at this for just a second. Look at the first part of this verse. When did that happen? The first advent, right? That's when a child was born to us and a son was given to them, right? And who's the us? Israel, right? was well, isn't that the first advent? That's when that happened. In the first advent, look at the next part, Jerry. Is the government going to rest on his shoulders? Well, did they call him wonderful or counselor or mighty God? Now, wait a second. Who is he talking about being called eternal father? The son that was given and prince of peace. Did they call him those things? No, his people didn't call that to him. That's not the first advent. That's the second. Now, when Isaiah was writing that, could he understand that? You understand Isaiah's statement better than Isaiah did. Better than any of the Jews who read it did. That's because we're looking back. This was a mystery. Until it was explained to us, no one knew. Aren't you glad you're living when you are? You got a chance to be the terminal generation. And by that, I mean the generation that's alive when the Lord raptures us. Now, let's go on. I want you to think back now about the value, the reflectability, the ease to work with, with all the degeneration and decay that started to happen. Each phase of each empire to become worse and worse. I want you to notice this, if you don't mind, for just a second. Now the world will tell you that man is increasing and evolving, he's getting grander, and he's getting better as time goes on. What would God say? They would say, man would say the human race now has much greater value than it is in earlier times. God's view differs on that. He knows man to be devolving, increasing in hardness of his heart. It is not that man came from the animals, but it's that man is turning and more and more beast-like. That is what's happening. Now, let me just give you a little example of that. And don't, I don't want to get too started on this, but this is the degeneration of man. Uh, let's look at a time, some time periods. If you were to look at say the Stone Age, Jerry, the Stone Age supposedly happened from 3.3 million years ago ended sometime between 8,000 and 3,000 B.C. All right, that's the Stone Age. What came next after the Stone Age? Bronze Age. And here, it was supposedly, say, around 3,000 B.C. until sometimes around 1,000 B.C. Now, I want you to think about this. 1,000 B.C., that's right at the time that David became king. Before then, it was just Bronze Age, they say, just and then what about the Iron Age started in 1000 BC and we're there. I want you to instead turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. We're going to look at a line and you're going to see this line. It's the line of Cain. Now, most people, they don't study the line of Cain. The line of Cain's not important. They want to study the line of Seth because that's where all the good guys came from. The line of Cain, he starts with his father Adam, then Cain, then a guy named Enoch. Now, this is not the Enoch that you know of. This is a different Enoch. Then Erod, Majael, and Methusael, and then Lamech. Now, notice what it says about them starting with Lamech in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 4. Lamech took for himself two wives. Now, this is a short period of time from the beginning of mankind. He took the names of one wife was Ada, and the names of the other was Zillah. I don't know who's naming those girls, but Adah gave birth to Javel, the seventh generation. Now, this is the seventh generation from Adam. He was the father of those who dwelled in tents and have livestock. So what? Seven generations in, this guy is living in tents not caves, so he can move around, and he is into animal husbandry. He's taking care of flocks. He's domesticated all of these animals in just the seventh generation. Not 3.3 million years. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of those who played the lyre and the harp. So they have, are composing music, and they're creating musical instruments, and they're playing. But the one I really wanted to see is his next one, Afurzillah. She also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. You see that? Seventh generation after Adam, these guys are forging both bronze and iron at the same time. They no stone age, bronze age, iron age. There's God's age. Now, you go to any school, they're going to tell you that's not true. Well, they're lying. Now, are they lying intentionally? No, they're lying out of ignorance. That's what they've been taught. That's not, the Bible is true, their teaching and research is wrong. You know, if you look at things, I can remember liberal biblical scholars used to say, and I've read their writings, and they say, I know in Revelation it says the two witnesses are going to die, and their bodies are going to lay on the streets of Jerusalem for three days, and then they're going to be raised from the dead, and everybody in the world will see it. There's no way everybody in the world could see it. That's impossible. Would you say that now? No. <laughs> you see, when they were writing, they were stupid. Why? Because they didn't know the future. Ignorant. Who knows the future and is not ignorant? God, who gave that revelation to John. Over and over and over. This isn't a biblical example, but I can remember uh, there was a, a French guy in the 1700s who said, we will never have vehicles are ways of traveling more than 35 miles an hour. If you did and you stuck your hand out, the wind pressure would just blow the flesh off your bones. How many have put their hands outside a car window that's going faster than 35 miles an hour? Did the flesh blow? No, they were ignorant. But you believe them because they are the latest and greatest things. No, the example is you believe the Bible Because it is always true, it is never false, and we need to come to understand that. You see, this dream sends a clear message who's in control of history. He knows the beginning from the end. More specifically, he knows the future because he was the one who planned it. He knows it. God even uses those who are evil and who have no knowledge of him to accomplish his purposes like he did with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, when he was destroying, he had no knowledge of the God. Any knowledge he did have of Yahweh was, I'm going to defeat him. And when he destroyed Jerusalem, he said, see, I've defeated Yahweh. Little did he know that he's going to be turned into an animal one day. Now, it's interesting. You compare the revelation of this dream to Joseph's revelation of the dream and the meaning of Pharaoh and future kingdoms. It's clear God always knows the future and what's going to happen. Number two, this dream reveals that human enterprises are always in decline as time goes on. Always in decline. I hate to say this, and it really brings tears to my eyes. Isn't that exactly what has happened to the United States of America? Look what it really was when it started, and look what it is now. And it's sad, but it's clear sin brings decline as time goes on it will become more and more difficult to hold things together near the end of the world it will appear to be unraveling to the point that no one can save it even progressive liberals are telling us we're in dire trouble nobody's going to be able to fix this problems we have now their problems are not the real problems but the iron feet appear to be strong but the clay which crumbles so easy tells the opposite result and finally this dream reveals god's universal power. That is true even as to the strongest kings and kingdoms. It further demonstrates God's faultless wisdom and understanding. That's what we have to remember as we go forward and as we live in this decaying world in which we are living, decaying country in which we live. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend together today. I thank you for the reliability and the accuracy of your word. Father... Help us to understand how you want us to live in this decaying nation. Tell us how you want us to be lights. Help us to understand that the time is short for getting your gospel out. Help us to be strong and courageous, ready to stand up and to share your gospel with power and with love and with self-control. As it says in 2 Timothy seven. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.